Galatians chapter 4. You want to put a bookmark there, but we're also going to be in Genesis, Genesis 15. So take your Bibles. Uh, We'll actually start in Genesis 15, but also mark Galatians 4. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you and we're so grateful for your son, Jesus, who we've been singing about how beautiful he is, all that he's done. He lived a life that we could never live because we're sinners and rebels. He died the death that we all deserve because we're sinners and rebels. And you raised him from the dead, validating his mission of why he came to save sinners from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. We look to him this morning for our life. And we look to your Holy Spirit, Father. Your word says in 2 Corinthians 3 that the letter kills. The law kills. It condemns us as sinners because we can't meet its perfect standard. But your word says there also, but the Spirit gives life. Would you give life to us today through your word, through the gospel Regenerate people as they're hearing the gospel. Bring people to you, Father. May we understand the good news of the gospel once again this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you would be hard-pressed to find someone who said that their life verse, that their favorite verse in all of the Bible was found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. For most people, especially most preachers, this is not a go-to passage. No pastor, when he's candidating at a church, will use Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31 as their candidating sermon. Galatians 4, 21 through 31 is like the New Testament version of 1 and 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament. It's like one of those Old Testament passages full of genealogies. Not because it names a couple of people, which it does, but because this passage is not necessarily heartwarming. It doesn't give you the warm fuzzies upon first reading, or second reading, or 25th reading. You won't find these verses printed on t-shirts or coffee mugs. You won't find people using these verses on Facebook. But after today's sermon, you just might. After today's sermon, you might just be tempted to put these verses on Facebook. You might be tempted to put them on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. You might even get evangelical crazy and underline these verses or highlight these verses in your Bible. Well, how's that for setting myself up for failure? I just promised you that I was going to make this passage shine. Actually, the truth is this. If any of us understand and love this passage today, it will only be because of the Holy Spirit. It will only be because the Spirit gives life. But I hope you leave here today excited about this passage. Now, having said that, understand this. There's nothing wrong with this passage. There's nothing wrong with any passage of Scripture, any passage of God's Word. This, the problem is with us. We're dull, we're dense, we're slow, and we're hard-hearted. 
The problem lies with us, not God's word. But this is one of those passages that the apostle Peter was talking about in 2 Peter 3.16 when he said, the apostle Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. This is one of those passages. It's hard to get a grip on it. So let me tell you ahead of time where we're going. And then we'll roll up our sleeves and we'll get our hands dirty with the text. Here's our big idea today. Rejoice, O barren one. That's the big idea of the sermon. That's what this sermon is all about. This passage of scripture is saying to believers in Jesus Christ, rejoice, O barren one. Now, what in the world does that mean? It comes from verse 27 where Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I'll unpack this and hopefully you'll start rejoicing like a barren woman as the sermon progresses. Maybe you're thinking, did Benji just say that we should rejoice like a barren woman? Does he know that barren women don't rejoice? Yes, I know that barren women don't rejoice. They want kids. They want to have children and they can't for some reason. But there is a kind of barren woman that does rejoice. There is a kind of barren woman who rejoices in her infertility. There is a kind of joy that makes you rejoice when you're barren, when you're empty, when you have nothing. More on that in a moment, but let's get the background of this passage. It involves Abraham and Sarah and their lack of belief, their unbelief in the promises of God and how they decided to try to help God when it came to having children, when it came to seeing his promise fulfilled. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We looked at this several weeks ago. We'll return to it. Again, I will refer to Abraham and Sarah as I talk, but in the passages that we'll read, their names uh, are Abram and Sarai. They get changed eventually. God changes their names, but I'll just refer to them as Abraham and Sarah. But as we read, we'll call them Abram and Sarai. So look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord, all capital letters Lord, is the Hebrew name Yahweh, God's covenant name. After these things, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. So Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of the universe, appeared to Abraham and told him that he would make a great nation out of him. But Abraham was childless. So he's a little puzzled how this is going to happen. Will Abraham's servant Eleazar be his son, his offspring, if you will? 
Well, the Lord tells Abraham that he will have his own son and then invites him to go outside and look into the night sky. And and he tells him, if you can number the stars, go for it. Guess what? That's how many descendants you are going to have. So Abraham believes Yahweh's promise. He believes God's promise to him. And he enters into a covenant. God enters into a covenant with Abraham whereby... God unconditionally promises to give Abraham a son and many descendants. God says, I am going to do this for you. It's unconditional. I'm doing it. But some time goes by and Abraham's wife, Sarah, never gets pregnant. She's barren. They keep running to CVS Pharmacy to get those pregnancy tests. And Sarah keeps emerging from the bathroom each time to say, there's no positive sign They've read what to expect when you're expecting several times. They're watching the calendar. They know when the optimal times of the month are, when an egg can get implanted. They are doing everything they can, and yet there's still no morning sickness, no excessive napping on Sarah's part, no eating like a hobbit seven meals a day plus snacking, and no baby. So Abraham, like all men, is a fixer. Abraham is like Bob the Builder. Can we fix it? Yes, we can, Sarah. So Abraham puts a plan in motion to rectify the situation. Actually, he gets a honey-do list from his wife, Sarah. And like any smart man, he gets busy tackling her honey-do list. So look at Genesis chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 15 and 16. Continuing the story, Genesis 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this was a common ancient Near Eastern practice. If you were barren, you would have a child through one of your servants or a family member. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar. And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on Sarai, her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Jump down to verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Abraham, Abram here, takes Hagar per Sarah's request, and Hagar gets pregnant. After Hagar's belly starts showing a little bit, she does that little childhood playground taunt, and she says to Sarah, na 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 you can't get pregnant, but I can, na 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 
You've heard the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That saying started here in Genesis 16. So Sarah is livid. And she tells Abraham how Hagar is treating her. And Abraham says, she's your servant. I'm not going to micromanage this. You do to her as you wish. So Sarah tells her to pack her bags and hit the road. And Hagar has to leave. But she eventually returns because the Lord appears to her. That's the section that we skipped over there. So Abraham's, we can do this plan, is complete. He now has a child. He now has an heir. Now, according to Abraham, Yahweh's covenant promise can be fulfilled. Now, it can all come true. To which Yahweh, the Lord, replies via text message, Not so fast, Abe. This is not my plan. I work with and deal with my people on the basis of promise. My promise to them. Not their performance. Not their work for me. And then what does the Lord text to Sarah? He sends her a brief text message that says, Rejoice, O barren one. After appearing to Abraham and reiterating his promise to make a great nation out of him, the Lord tells Abraham that the promise will come through his barren, can't have kids. We've tried the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of in vitro fertilization wife Sarah. You're going to have a child. It's going to come through your wife Sarah who can't have kids. That's my promise to you. Now look at Genesis 17. Verses 15 through 21, as the story continues. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face. And laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Abraham laughs when the Lord tells him that Sarah will get pregnant. This is God. The God of the universe says, your wife's going to get pregnant even though she's barren. And Abraham laughs. Now, don't you go throwing Abraham under the bus because we do the same thing with God's promises, don't we? Can't be true. He, he forgives me of everything, really? Accepts me? Can't be true. It can't be true. We do the same thing as Abraham. Abraham laughs when the Lord tells him that Sarah will get pregnant. He does that because Abraham's no dummy. He's 100 years old, and Sarah is 90. Sarah's biological clock quit ticking a long time ago. It's broken. It doesn't work anymore. Time's up for Sarah. So Abraham says to God, 
With all due respect, Lord, I took a biology class at the Chaldean Community College. I know how this pregnancy stuff works, and we can't have kids. I'm 100, she's 90, we wear diapers now. So let's just let the promise come through Ishmael. Capish? To which the Lord replies, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then the Lord adds a P.S. P.S. Rejoice, O barren one. Abraham and Sarah could rejoice because God's covenant promise would be fulfilled because of him and not their works for him. Abraham and Sarah could rejoice because God's covenant comes through promise and not through performance. Abraham and Sarah could rejoice because their relationship with God was all about what God would do for them and not what they did for God. It sounds a lot like the book of Galatians, doesn't it? It does. And that's because that's how God has always dealt with his people. So let's turn back to Galatians so we can see what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Let's turn back to the book of Galatians so we can see what Paul is saying to the Galatian churches and so that you can get excited and maybe put some verse out of Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 31 on Facebook later today. Let's turn back to Galatians so that you can start rejoicing like a barren woman. Look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul's addressing the Galatians who are being told by these false teachers, their name, they're they're called Judaizers. The Judaizers are telling the Galatian Christians that they have to return to the Mosaic law to try and get God's favor, to, to earn his blessing by their performance. So Paul says rather tongue in cheek to them, You want to go back under the law? Okay, fine. Listen to the law. Go back and read the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and you'll see that everything I've been telling you in this letter so far is right there too. I'm just plagiarizing the Old Testament. I'm just telling you how God has always dealt with his people. And then Paul proceeds to school them in the Old Testament by taking them back To Abraham, the story that we just read in Genesis. So look at verses 22 through 26. See what Paul says about what we just read. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, and one by a free woman, Sarah. But the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. See, I told you this passage was hard to understand, right? Maybe you don't struggle with it. 
I read it and read it and was like, my brother-in-law texted me and said, how can I be praying for you this week? I said, this sermon, I don't even know what I'm going to say. In fact, I heard a pastor say, as he was preaching through this, for a whole month, he prayed that Jesus would come back because he knew in four weeks he was going to get to Galatians chapter four. And he said, I don't know what it says. Jesus, come back so I don't ever have to preach that passage. It's a hard passage to understand. Nothing wrong with God's word. Something wrong with us. Paul is saying here that if the Galatians would read the Old Testament law, they would understand how law and gospel work by looking at Abraham's life. And Paul, while totally believing that Abraham, his story is a true historical account, Paul still says that we can interpret that true historical account as an allegory too. The ESV Study Bible illustrates the contrast of law and gospel. What you must do, law and gospel, what Jesus has done for you. And it's in your study notes. So you can spend some time this week walking back through the passage and seeing the distinction of law and gospel that Paul is talking about here. But here's what Paul is doing when he looks back at Abraham's life and interprets it allegorically. Paul connects Hagar to the flesh, to the old covenant, and to present-day Jerusalem. Hagar, the slave woman, is a picture of the law. Hagar gives birth to slaves. Hagar is like present-day Jerusalem, like present-day Judaism. But Paul connects Sarah to the promise, to the new covenant, and to the heavenly Jerusalem above. Sarah, the free woman, is like the promise. She's like the gospel. Sarah gives birth to to sons. Sarah is like the Jerusalem from above that exists now, the city of God that exists now that's coming one day to the earth. Hagar and Sarah are a picture of the distinction that exists between law and gospel, what we must do and what Jesus has already done for us. Hagar is connected with Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments, God gave the law to Israel through Moses. Hagar represents the law. Hagar was a slave woman who gave birth to a slave boy. And that's because the law only gives birth to slaves. The law gives birth to slaves who can't keep the law. Now, the law does promise life. The Mosaic law does promise life to those who can fully obey it, but no one can. Can you fully obey the Ten Commandments? We're slaves to sin. We can't keep the law perfectly, but the law promises us life on the condition, get this, of perfection. That's why Paul is telling the Galatians that they don't want to go the route of the law to get to God because the standard is perfection. If you want to take the law route to God by trying to be good enough, guess what? You have to be perfect. Good enough doesn't cut it. The conditional promise of the law is perfection. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, good luck with that. Good luck going back under the law and trying to be perfect. So understand this, Grace. The law, God's law, sum it up in the Ten Commandments, demands perfection, not progress. If you're trying hard and making a little progress, that doesn't cut it with the law. The law says, nope, not good enough. 
The law says, I want to see perfection. Don't tell me you're making progress. I demand perfection. God's holy law demands perfection because God is perfect. And that's why Hagar is a picture of our performance when we try to earn God's love. Hagar and Ishmael are a picture of us trying to do our part to get right with God. Abraham tried to help God, and we all do our best to earn his love instead of resting on and trusting in his promises. Hagar represents our tendency to get on the performance treadmill to try to work to earn God's love and favor. You've heard me talk about the performance treadmill where we get on it and we think, if I read God's word, then he'll love me. If I serve in the church, he'll love me. If I pray, if I give. If I do all these things for him, he will love me. He will be happy in me. He will delight in me. And if I fail to do those things, he'll shake his head in disgust. That's the performance treadmill. How many, of us get, how many of us wake up feeling condemned and guilty because of our sin and we think we have to work our way to God instead of waking up and saying, because of Jesus, he absolutely adores me right now. Regardless of my failures, regardless of my sin, he loves me. But we buy into the performance treadmill mindset when we think things like, oh, I didn't have my quiet time today. I didn't pray. I didn't read God's word. My day's gonna be ruined. God's depressed because I didn't pray to him. He's having a bad day. I'm having a bad day. All because of me and my quiet time. That's the performance treadmill. The problem, though, with getting on the performance treadmill to earn God's favor through our obedience, what we do for him is that there is no off button. We just get on the treadmill and try and try and try and work and work and work to win his favor, to win his love, and it just wears us out and it will eventually kill us. That's why this series is called Joy Killers. Because if you get on the treadmill, the performance treadmill, it will kill your joy. That's why Martin Luther said this, those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves. Slaves who will never receive the inheritance even though they work themselves to death with their great effort. But Sarah, Paul is saying, is a picture of the gospel. Through Sarah, the free woman, the promise is fulfilled. Isaac comes through the promise, not performance, not through what Abraham and Sarah did, but because of God's promise. That means that God loves you, not because of what you do for him, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And then Paul says, let me tell you why I've said all this stuff about how the gospel is all about God's promise to us and not about our performance. Paul says, because it's in the Old Testament prophets too. Paul's saying, this is how the Lord has always dealt with his people. It's always been about promise and not performance. It's always been about what God does for his people and not what his people do for him. It's always been about finding our joy in his works, in Jesus' works, and not in our works. It's always been about joy in Jesus, our Redeemer. 
that he did what we could never do. And that's why Paul's heart just burst open here in verse 27. Paul can't keep his joy in. He's trying to stuff it down in there. He can't keep it in. No one can kill Paul's joy. He's drunk on 180 proof gospel. And so he quotes one of the most gospel rich promises in the Old Testament. Look at verse 27. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul wants the Galatian Christians to see that God has always given his grace to the barren, to the empty to the weak, to people who have nothing. He gives his grace to those who come to him with no righteousness of their own to claim, which is exactly opposite the false gospel that the Judaizers were telling the Galatians. The Galatians were falling for that false gospel. The Galatians were being told by the Judaizers that they could be good enough through their works, what they did for God, to earn God's love. But Paul quotes Isaiah to say that this isn't how God works. This passage that Paul quotes from Isaiah was originally for the Jewish exiles who were taken away into Babylon because the nation turned away from serving the Lord. This was around 1,200 years after Abraham when Isaiah is prophesying and about 600 years before Paul. And since Paul quoted Isaiah, Allow me to quote Tim Keller, who explains Paul's quotation of Isaiah. He does it better than I can. He says this, The remaining Israelites in exile in Babylon thought their national life was over, that they would never return home or have their own country again. They seemed like failures, weak and helpless. Their exile was punishment, while other nations seemed strong and able. But God says to them through Isaiah, Now that you are helpless, you will see that it is the weak in whose lives my grace works. The strong are too busy relying on themselves. I will make you numerous and great. The prophecy of Isaiah looks back to Genesis 16 in which God looks down on two women. One beautiful and fertile and the other barren and old. And he chooses to save the world through the barren one. And through her family would come another unlikely son, born to another woman who could have no expectation of being pregnant, not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. And through that son, capital S, Jesus, all the peoples of the world would be blessed just as God promised Abraham and Sarah. That is how God's grace works. And this is why Paul breaks out in praise in verse 27. This is why Paul says, rejoice, O barren one. Why? Because people who are barren, empty spiritually, they are the ones that God fills. People who come with the empty hands of faith are the ones whom God fills. Are you barren today? Are you empty Do you bring nothing to the table but your sin and your weakness? Then rejoice. 
You're the kind of people God's looking for. You want to know why? Because someone said this once. God lives at the end of your rope. You want to find God? You searching for God? I'm going to search for God. I don't know where he is. Guess where he lives. He lives at the end of your rope. And when you come to the end of your rope in your life, you'll find his house there. And you can knock on the door and he'll say, it's about time. You figured it out. I will give you everything that you need. You looking for God? You got to come to the end of yourself. You got to come to the end of your rope. Paul knows that God's grace comes to those who don't deserve it. His grace doesn't come to you because you read your Bible and have your quiet time. His grace comes to you because you don't deserve his grace. It comes to those who are struck down by the law and they despair of their own righteousness because they say, I see how perfect you are, God. You demand perfection from every human being. I can't do it. And God says, you're right where you need to be. As Jack Miller used to say, Grace runs downhill. God's grace runs downhill to those who have nothing. You don't find God's grace at the top of the hill. And he says, climb your way up, boy. This is where my grace is. Come on, dig in deep. God's grace flows downhill to those who are at the bottom. And they say, I have nothing. I need Jesus. The Judaizers We're telling the Galatians that they had to earn God's grace. They had to work hard, perform for him. And that's why they hated Paul. And that's why Paul says what he says in verses 28 to 31. Paul will tell the Galatians that just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so too the Judaizers would persecute those who preach grace. And that's why they hated Paul. Look at verses 28 to 31. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, not performance. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul is saying that the Judaizers should be cast out of these Galatian churches because they're not family. They want to earn their way to God. So Paul says, throw them out the way Sarah threw out Hagar Because if they don't, if you don't throw them out, Galatians, they'll end up persecuting you because they hate grace. Paul is saying that those who want to earn their way to God by their performance always hate on the ones who freely receive his grace. Those who want to work to earn God's love, they don't like grace grace because they can't earn it because you can't earn grace which is why someone has said if you want to make people angry preach the law but if you want to make people really angry preach grace if you want to make people angry you preach the law this is god's standard he requires perfection It'll make people angry. You don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me that there's objective truth in God's word. That'll make people angry. If you really want to make people angry, you preach grace. 
you say, if you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, God accepts you absolutely as you are. You don't have to do anything. Really? I'm free? You're free. You don't have to do anything. You are free. You are a child. But I have to work? No, free. That's why people hate grace. They hate grace because we are doers by nature. God told the first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, do this and you will live. You can eat of all the fruit that you want to, but that one tree, don't even touch it. And Adam did. And then because that's part of our DNA, we think, I've got to earn my way back now. I should have obeyed. I've got to earn, earn, earn. We want to pull in Abraham and try and do our part to get to God. But grace says we're free. But so many of us work for God's favor. We are like Bob the Builder spiritually. Can we fix our spiritual problem? Yes, we can. But we can't, even though we try so hard to do it. And that's why we need to be told once again this morning and once again in this sermon, rejoice, O barren one. If you have repented of your sins, you've owned up to your sins and said, I know I'm broken. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a rebel. I know God has this high standard. I can't meet it. And you trust in Jesus, that he lived a life that you could never live. If that's you today, then you're not a child of the slave woman. You are a child of the free woman. You are free. If you can't say that today, you need to repent and trust in Jesus. It's the only way to get to God. It's the only way to avoid eternal punishment in hell. It's the only way to be with God forever. But if you've done that, Christian, you are free. Christian, God's love for you is not dependent on what you do. God's love for you is not dependent on what you do. As Pastor Tolly and Chavidjian says, Christianity is a love affair with an unlosable lover. You can't lose God, Christian. You may have had lovers walk away from you in your life before. This lover, capital L, will never walk away from you no matter what you do, Christian. You are in a love affair with an unlosable lover. You can't lose him, Christian. He loves you because of his promise, not your performance. So rest in that today. Trust in that today. Rejoice in that today, O barren one. And then put that on Facebook today. It is Facebook worthy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. How patient you are with your children. It's just so hard to believe that you could love us unconditionally. We see our sin. We see our failure. Some of us see it our See what we do for you and it makes us proud. We're not like those Christians. We do things. We love you. They don't love you. So we're people on both ends of the spectrum here today, God. Some who just can't receive your love. and Some think they're so good they earned it. God, would you turn our eyes to Jesus this morning?
that we always come empty with nothing. Help us to rejoice because we're barren, knowing then that you will fill us. Bring us to the end of our rope so that we can find you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.